Evening, Hope Church. Excited for Christmas? Yeah, two of you are. That's good. Oh, well, we'll, we'll have a good time. Open up to 1 John chapter 2, please, as we continue our uh, series through this amazing epistle. This is why we gather. While we, um, we gather for fellowship and we gather for encouragement from one another, we ultimately do gather, not to hear from, not to hear from man, not to hear from each other, not just to partake in, in songs, but we come to meet with our covenant Lord. We sing because he commands us to sing in the Bible. We uh, read the word because he told us to read the word. Uh, we, we fellowship with one another and encourage each other because he told us to do that in the word. The word is our, our supreme means of grace, our, 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 our ultimate uh, authority and guide in all things when we relate to the Lord God. So we love preaching through the Bible here at uh, Hope Reformed Baptist Church. That's how we, we keep ourselves on a stable diet of, uh, of all that God has said. We just go through books line by line. So if you're new or visiting that's us. That's what you can expect. Long Bible series. <clears throat> now, is, my, is my, my microphone on? There you go. All right, good. I'm, I'm a bit blocked up up here in my head, so uh, uh, I needed to make sure. So we're, we're in verse 7. We've already been through, you guessed it, chapter 1, 2, and 3. And we started chapter 4 last week where John was encouraging the believers left in Ephesus at that church to test the spirits to make sure that they didn't have just in their mind the false way of teaching that the false teachers had spread around, that if it's to do with the flesh, it's probably bad. But geez, if it's anything spiritual or miraculous or powerful or more than what mere flesh can do, then it, it's got to be from God. It's amazing. It's good if it's spiritual. And John told them, be careful. Not all sources of spiritual power are, in fact, from the Lord God, but, but demons are around in the world. The, the spirit of the Antichrist, he told us, which is the spirit of false teaching, which loves to spread false doctrine and tempt people towards false doctrine or blind people from false doctrine by giving them fun stuff like miracles and exorcisms and blessings and prosperity. The devil can give you that as much as he wants, as long as he keeps you from the gospel. And so today we see that John goes back to tell us about the love of God and also the love that God's people need to have among ourselves. Let's look here in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. I, I just got to stop there. I, I'm not preaching yet. I'm just reading. But, but every point, you'll notice this at every point in the book of John, I keep on trying to remind us, is that John never tells us what to do or how to act or how to live without first reminding us who you are. So back when he was telling us to be righteous in chapter 2, he told us Jesus is righteous for you. You have right standing with God on the basis of Jesus' righteousness. Therefore, you be righteous. When he was telling us to live new lives a couple of weeks ago, he was telling us because you're new people, you have the Holy Spirit, new creations, you can now live new lives. And I love that now when he's going to tell us to love, he calls us the beloved. You who have been loved also love. All right, we're through the first word. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, 
we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not, uh, for he who does not love his brother, whom he can, whom he has, (coughs) I'll start that one again. Who, he who loves, I just, John writes in circles, doesn't he? If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves must also love his brother. Can I just get an amen? May God bless us as we read and preach and hear and have faith in his word this evening. This is the word of God spoken to you by the pen of the apostle John. You'll see there, as was pretty evident by the end, uh, John is very cyclical. We've already said by this, like like when you read Paul, you read uh, premise, scriptural proof, application. Second premise, scriptural proof, application. He's very linear. He's like a lawyer. He's very logical, whereas John is cyclical. He goes around in circles, but not just repeating himself. I know he's about 90 years of age when he writes this, but he doesn't have dementia. He's just a grandfather who repeats himself to children. We are the children of God, and he he goes around in circles, sort of driving home every time he goes around. The point, just a little bit deeper, from a slightly different angle. We've already seen God's love sort of shown to us in other parts of this letter, and then we've already seen that we should love each other in other parts of this letter, but he hits it at a different angle, in a different way, and we're thankful for the way that he does so this evening. God is love. We're going to first look at the fact that uh, of God's love, and then we're going to look at our love. We're going to look at the, the, the definition, the initiation of God's love, and then we're going to look at basically just eight application points or eight things that the love of God in us does and is among us. Let's go back and look at verse, uh, verse 7. <clears throat> he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves God has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. This verse, this verse 8, tells us the fact, not simply that God is loving, but that God is love. Now what this tells us also is, when we start doing theology, we don't have a category called love that we put God in, as if John is saying, God is loving the way that you define loving. Rather, what he's saying is that God is himself the definition of love. 
Therefore, whatever God does is love. Whatever God does is love in the highest sense. We, we can never, therefore, get caught up or start asking the question and go, well, hang on, if God's so loving, how come there's so much suffering? Or, hey, if God loves me so much, then why dot, dot, dot? Or, if God's so loving, what's all this talk of wrath in the Bible and, and him being an enemy of the sinner or, or whatever? We can't do that because John's saying that God defines love. He is love. He is the category which other things are compared to. He is the standard which measures other things so that if something is not godly, it is not love. We don't simply get to define love by itself. You've, you've heard it said uh, today, waved on big flags, lots of churches will chuck it on the sign. Of course, I use churches in inverted commas. Love is love is what people want to say. Now, now that's, that's so true, it's, un, it's unneeded to be said. Love is love. But where they, where, what they, the reason they try and define that is so that love can be defined however you wish. Because if love is love, it's defined by itself without some kind of external uh, standard by which it measures. So no, in fact, even though it sounds idiotic to say, love is not love. Because love is love is just a vacuum, empty space of a definition. And you know why we do that. You know why sinners try and do that. It's to try and remove God's standard, remove God's law, remove God's righteousness, remove God's commandments from what love is. And people feel a lot freer to just be able to say, love is love. Love is whatever love is, and whatever love is, is love. Which is basically just to say that love is God. Love is ultimate. Love is the highest being or thing or authority that is out there. So that you can't question love. It defines itself. It is its own truth. But we don't believe that. We believe that God is God. God defines truth and God defines love. God is love. And also, again, just as love doesn't get to define love, so also man doesn't, we don't, we don't get to define love and then judge God by our new created standards. <clears throat> Secondly, though, so while God defines love, God is love, he also initiates love. Look at verse 10. I'm not going line by line through this section of Scripture. I'm going uh, point by point, and he, he mentions points sort of in, like we said, circles, so we're going to be jumping around a little bit as we go. Verse 10 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved God. Us. When we speak of God's love, we need to realize that it is the initiating love. It is the love that loved first because it is the love that had no beginning. We're able to say in a very real sense that God is love and not simply that God began to love because God has forever in all of eternity past been in a community, a relationship of absolute perfect, eternal, infinite love. This is why Muslims are unable to say that Allah is love. They will have to say something like, and they do, that God began to love, Allah began to love after he created something because by definition, and they're right on this point, love requires an object. For love to be love, it has to be outgoing from one to another a person to a person. And until God had or Allah had created the world that was distinct from him, he could not love anything. So he's great, he is whatever he is, but not until he created did he begin to love. That's a finite 
That's a starting. That's not an eternal love. And I hope you don't start getting caught up in that and go, well, well, we fall into the same trap. I mean, until God created something, he didn't have somebody to love. You know, friends, the Bible reveals to us, and I hope you're aware, I hope you're able to defend it and, and explain this to others, that the Bible reveals to us a triune being, which is Yahweh, the covenant God of Scripture. That he is eternally one God that exists in three distinct co-equal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they weren't bickering before they created the world. They didn't need to create the world because they were bored, they were lonely, they needed something or someone to love or something to do. They existed in perfection, in love, in unity. And therefore we can say, in the most truest sense, that while we're saying here God loved first, really what we can say is that God has eternally loved. God has existed in a community of love for eternity because of the doctrine of the Trinity. So God's love is that initiating love which loved first, but also he, it's the love that began all other loves. So while God was inward focused and loved himself perfectly in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, yet also his love to us is eternal. I, I mean us, of course, as the saved people of God, those who are in Christ now, in the past, or in the future. What the Bible might also say, the elect of God, the chosen people of God that he chose from before the foundations of the world. There, we're told, say in Titus, that we were given grace before the foundation of the world in Christ Jesus. We're told in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, that in love God predestined us to be adopted in the beloved, that is Jesus Christ. In love, God has loved us for the sake of and in the person of Jesus Christ, his son. God has eternally loved the elect. I love what uh, Geharis Voss said when he said, the surest proof that God will never stop loving his children is that he never began. Which doesn't mean that he never began loving you and he won't ever begin loving you, give it up. No, no, no. What we mean is that God's love towards his children didn't have a beginning because the covenant of redemption where the father promised the son that he would give to him a people and the son promised the father that he would go and discharge all that was necessary to win those people back from sin, that he would die for them, that he would live for them, that he would resurrect for them. He promised that and the father received that promise and the father promised the son and the son received that promise in the union of the Holy Spirit, what we call the covenant of redemption, the eternal covenant, Hebrews 13 calls it, that covenant was made before the foundations of the world. Our God is a God that as long as he has been God, has been loving himself in unity and triunity and has been loving his elect through the plan of salvation. In the truest sense, like it's easy to go and read First John or even the book of John and this is what a lot of people say, you know, if you're looking for something simple, new believer, go and read John. And, and that's actually quite good to do because it's, it's one you can skim through and yet it's also the one that continues to baffle and blow apart the mine shafts of those digging into theology decade after decade. It is an amazing book. You see how easy that would have been to just skim past? Yeah, God's love and he loved first. Yeah, well, that's true, I guess. It is so rich with theology to understand the love of God towards his children. It is an initiating love that has elected us before even we began. 
But going back to our earlier issue of saying God is love, John defines love for us. Like he's already defined it enough to say God is love, but then just in case, this wouldn't happen, right? You all know this doesn't happen. Pastors and theologians don't take the Bible and misapply it, do they? They just don't do that. People don't try and use it to get them out of culturally sensitive topics like love and marriage and sexuality, stuff like that. They just don't do that. They don't do it. People are perfect. Pastors are perfect. Theologians are perfect. Uh, and so no one would ever sort of take up God's, God's word and then fail to be absolutely honest to what God's love is, Right? So wrong, it doesn't need an amen. John doesn't just say that God defines love. He then goes one step further and really carefully nails down into the ground the definition of God's love by which we define love. There's no wiggle room here. He defines God's love here in verse 9, and the end of verse 10, and then verse 15. So look at verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. So, so, so how do we know the love of God? You just said love's defined by God. I don't get to make up my own definition of love. Okay, what is God's love? Well, here it's made manifest. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Look at the end of verse 10. But that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In verse 14, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his son to be the saviour of the world. God's love is defined for us. We're not left in this dangerous vacuum of whatever you want God to be or whatever you want God's love to be, right? Because people might be, might be apt to say, God is love, therefore, here's how the love of God was made manifest among us. He leaves us alone in our sin, all right? He doesn't judge us and neither should you, pastor, Christian, person, okay? God loves us so much, he just doesn't, he doesn't bother us. He leaves us in our sin and gets over it ultra-tolerant God. That's how loving he is. Or people might want to say, well, he loves so much that he has promised not to punish us. That's what God's love does, right? Or they'll say that God loves so much that he's, he's sort of ripped out some of those pages from the ugly Old Testament and he's assured us that he would never get wrathful or angry towards people about sin because God is love. But that's not what John does. Far from saying that God loves us so he leaves us alone, he says God loves us so he sent his son to save us from the reign of sin, verse 9. He sent him in to not leave us alone. The worst thing that God can do to you is leave you alone. He sent his son to save us from the reign of sin. Also, he loved us so much that he sent his son to be the savior from his punishment. He doesn't promise that he won't punish. He just promises that there's a chance, there is an option, there is an opportunity to flee from his punishment. And also, he doesn't love so much as to not talk about the insensitive topic of wrath. He doesn't love so much that he refuses to get angry or wrathful. For verse 10 tells us, this is love, that he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 
Now, just in case anybody doesn't remember back or wasn't here in chapter 2, the word propitiation, and I know your version might say atoning sacrifice or might say expiation of guilt, and they're not horrible, but they're pretty horrible. The word propitiation is important. It was in the Greek as um, uh, the same word that they spoke of the, the lid of the altar in God's holy place where blood would be shed. And what they pictured that, what the word meant, and it was used in other religions in the same language, the word meant to turn away the wrath of God by satisfying it. So that, so that God does not just look at us and say, geez, you're lovable, Geez, I was angry in the Old Testament. Now I've had my coffee. I'm less angry. Geez, I'll accept you and I will turn my wrath away to some kind of nondescript, vague click of a button, as if God is, God is mechanical like that. He does not simply throw his love out randomly, sorry, rather his wrath, does not just turn his wrath off or switch it away randomly, but he directs it to his son Jesus, who has the perfect God and man can both represent man who is sinful and represent God who is righteous. And being the Lamb of God can go before God to be slaughtered, bled, crushed, Isaiah 53 says. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. God has put him to misery. Isaiah 53 tells us that his soul was in anguish and made an offering for guilt. Jesus became guilty with our sin, having not sinned himself, so that God could justly and fairly and legally punish Jesus in our place and for our sin. The propitiation of God. The way God was wrathful towards us because we had broken his law, because we had refused his rule, because we had rejected his, his godness. Romans 1 tells us we rejected him, did not acknowledge him, were enemies of him, and therefore he was filled with wrath, that wrath that he poured out on his son who became, in that moment, dying for us and absorbing God's wrath, the propitiation for our sins. The wrath of God and propitiation is not sort of a word. It's, it's not like I know you You every now and then, college, uh, uni students, every now and then you'll binge, binge a series. I know you don't do it often. We're way more holy than that here. But every now and then you'll binge a series. And if it's one uh, 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 that, uh, that uh, you've watched three or four hundred times before, then you know exactly which episodes you already like. And, and there's just sections that you'll skip because uh, uh, you're bored by this episode. or You don't like what happens in this episode. You think the directors could have done a better job. The wrath of God. The propitiation in the Bible is not one of the episodes we just get to skip because we don't enjoy this one. And, and we don't even get to enjoy it with, with so much separation from love so that we can go look at the love passages and miss out on the wrath of God passages because right here, John cannot even define love without speaking of the wrath of God and Jesus Christ who absorbs that wrath. They're just so close together. So if somebody was to tell you, geez, your pastor speaks a lot about the wrath of God, I know you get told that. I'll own that. Praise the Lord. I know that maybe if you're sharing the gospel and somebody else says to you or reads your social media and says, geez, you're really on about the wrath of God, right? Why don't you just talk about love? You can just point them to 1 John chapter 4 and say, I don't know how you pretend to be biblical and define God's love without mentioning the wrath of God. That is where we see the clearest picture of God in all of his attributes is the cross, the wrathful God that will not let sin go unpunished, and the loving God that will not let his people die under his wrath. God 
loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. So that first we see God's love is itself the definition of love. God's love is the initiating first love. And thirdly, he is, uh, his love is defined by the work of Jesus and his living, dying, and rising in our place. That's God's love. And then John directs us to our own love. And this is where we have to start asking questions of ourselves. Do I love like this? If I claim to believe that, do I also love like what John is about to say next? So, eight points, not all that long, eight points about what the love of, of Christians ought to look like. Don't laugh. I said not all that long, okay? Just eight quick points directed uh, about our love. Now, first of all, look at verse 7. Let us love one another, for, our lo for love is from God. Or look at verse 21. This command we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So we see, number one, that Christian love is directed to both God and to mankind. Or more, more specifically, more focused towards God and towards other Christians. That we love all people, but we have a familial, a family, a brother-sister love for those who are in Jesus Christ. In fact, that is the fulfillment of the law, isn't it? Good. Paul has said that, Jesus has said that, that to summarize the whole law, every command that God has ever given is love God, love neighbor. Pretty simple. This is the love that we should have. It is not just, and I say this because if you're, if you're diving into theology, if you want to learn the Bible, it can often become that it's you and you're leather bound and no one else. It's you and God and the Holy Spirit and the scriptures and that's the only family you need and as long as you are growing in knowledge, then you are doing all you feel you need to do. But God has made so very clear, tied together, it's of the same love that loves God that also loves one another. So first of all, it loves both God and humans. Secondly, it is a responsive or a secondary love. So that we've already defined that God's love is the initiating love. He makes the first step. He makes the first act of love towards us. And then we, that, we have, therefore, a secondary or responsive love. Like, like the love, maybe you read Song of Solomon's. Uh, uh, maybe you're not married yet and you're keeping yourself from temptation. But maybe you read Song of Solomon's and you see in this biblical picture of love that the husband pursues and initiates, and the wife, and yes, guys, this is how it's supposed to be, the wife is able to respond to an initiating, loving, affectionate husband. And there we see in Ephesians that that is simply a picture of Christ and his church. He who loved us first. He who loved us long. He who loved us costly. He who loved us as a husband expects that we, we respond in love. We see this in verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us. Now, he's not saying that in love, you just don't need to love God. That's irrelevant. What he's meaning is that we have not loved first. We didn't get this ball rolling. It's not defined by our love. And I'm encouraged by that because I'm somebody who is often having to find in myself a stirring up of a love that can grow weak. Isn't it encouraging to hear that God's love is the unchanging, constant, eternal, infinite love, and you are therefore able to always respond when you come to an empty tank of love? 
that God is not angry at you, seeking to kick you out of the family. If your confession in the morning is, God, I'm not even sure I feel anything towards you, but tiredness, fatigue, emotional boredom. Why do I feel like this? Confess that sin. Because if ours is a responsive love, then the relationship with God doesn't stop once yours runs out. God's is the foundation, always there, always initiating, always being applied to us, and we are therefore called to respond. God is loving, we reflect that love. Love flows from God, we love back and love out. Thirdly, our love comes from a new nature that you have. We've touched on this before. John brings it back up, so we'll remind ourselves. Look at verse 7, where he says, Not love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves God gets in a good standing with God, or whoever loves people gets more power from the Holy Spirit. That's, that's not where he's going. As if our regeneration, where our being born again, where our being made right with God depends on our love. Rather, he tells us that not only were you forgiven, not only were you justified, not only were you saved from hell at your salvation when you had faith in Jesus Christ, but it was greater than that. You were born again. You were resurrected up out of your old deathly living, that you are now a new creature. And on top of that, with new affections, with new heart, on top of all of that, the Holy Spirit has also been given to you, into your heart, to live and dwell and empower. So he says, verse 7, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. A new nature with a new mind and heart. You have been born again. Your love comes from a new nature. Look also at verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us by the Holy Spirit, he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Again, the encouragement is that you are not just doing this on your own, but you are empowered by a new nature and a new Holy Spirit given to you. Fourthly, the love of God, which we already said when we define God's love, the love towards God from us, the love to each other by us, is not divorced from doctrine. I know that in people's minds, it's, it's kind of easy, and maybe we don't blame them for doing it because we give them an excuse, but it's kind of easy to think of churches that are more of a love church, you know? And the preaching was weak, and the Bible wasn't firm, and sin wasn't confronted, and, and all of that, and was the gospel preached? Ah, well, irrelevant. It's, it's the sort of church that has at least going for it love. And maybe it's sinful, or maybe people give them an excuse. They go to maybe a robust doctoral church that's got like three capitals uh, R's in Reformed because they just want to make a point and, and it, it's on the door and, 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 and there's, it's everywhere, right? It's all about five-pointed hellos and all of that. And yet they'll go there and go, lots of doctrine, very little love. Now, I know there's a way to sinfully think that because people who think carnally don't define love the way God defines love, but I think also that people, Christians, maybe even us, give people an excuse. Because we have given ourselves an excuse to have doctrine without love or love without doctrine. Look at verse 15 and 16. He's talking about the apostolic teaching and the apostolic confession. 
That is what the apostles taught and expected the churches and demanded the churches to believe. Verse 15 and 16. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So he hasn't just left it at saying what he said in verse 13. If you love, or in verse 7, if you love, then God abides in you. But he's quick to follow that up by saying, but you must be confessing, believing, affirming, right doctrine, because love just like spiritual miracles, are able to be counterfeited. They're able to be faked. Verse 16, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever, love, whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So there's the love, and verse 15 was the doctrine. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Son of God, pre-incarnate, he, he had an eternal existence. He came into the world through the incarnation, and he died for us. All of this is bound up. God's love is defined. We saw this. It's doctrinally defined by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the first step of our love is agreeing with that definition. There is no love outside of God, we've been told, but that means that there's no true godly love outside of the affirmation of Jesus Christ. What an amazing thing it is to realize that only the only beings on this planet that have ever truly loved are people who believe in Jesus Christ. There's a human kind of love, but it's not born from God. There's a natural kind of love, but it's not born from God. The only people who have ever loved with a godly love are those born of Jesus Christ, who confess that he is God in the flesh. You cannot know God outside of knowing the cross, and therefore you can't know love outside of the cross. We're told, aren't we, that truth is in love. We're told in Ephesians and around uh, the New Testament, really the theme is speaking the truth in love, and we should do that. But it is easy to define, maybe we'll go back to the first here. Instead of saying love is love, we just say, nah, truth is love. That as long as I'm speaking the truth, I'm speaking love. And there's a sense in which that's true. Yet, the apostle is sure to back up and say, I know how, how humans are going to behave. They're going to just make an excuse for themselves and say, but I'm right. I'm theologically correct. I'm doctrinally sound. They can get over themselves. It's loving to be right. Right? But John is making the case that if you do know God like this, if you do know truth in Christ, it must be palpable in your brotherhood and in your sisterhood. One of the commentators on this text said, where someone claims to be a Christian but has no time for fellowship with others, criticizing the church, writing it off, practicing a, a solitary devotion, we have to ask whether that person is deluded and whether God really does live in him. For where the life of God is at work, it sweetens bitterness. It melts hardness, and it multiplies love. If we believe the truth, your love must be palpable. So it's not divorced from doctrine, it's married to doctrine. Number five, it points to an invisible God. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 says, no one has ever seen God. He's speaking of the Father. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Verse 17 says, 
By this is love perfected with us, right? Being perfected, that is, it's being made to complete, to be being visible. What John is getting at is, is that, I mean, if, if you're involved at all in apologetics or if you read Romans 1 or Psalm 19, you know that there is a great proof for the existence and the creator God by the creation that we're in. You don't get a creator. Yeah, sorry, you don't get a creation without a creator. You don't get this intricately built world without an infinite powerful mind behind it. And, and we might say that the, one of the greatest evidences of God's existence, right, leaving aside the transcendental presuppositional argument is the greatest proof of God is the creation. And yet John's getting at this fact that the second greatest evidence for the existence of God is the new creation, the Christian. You might, you should be able to just as powerfully say, hey, how did this church, how did these loving people, how do they exist in this world when everyone else is out for selfishness, when everyone else is out for their glory? You cannot explain without the existence of a loving, infinite, powerful God, the existence of Christians. The new creation that you are, that I am as Christians, gives evidence of the invisible God. And, verse 6, it gives evidence of our invisible salvation. God is invisible. Your salvation does not pop up like a letter on your back. It does not pop up like a tattoo on your arm. It does not leave some mark on your head. It is invisible. But it is made visible through love. Look at verse 20. <clears throat> verse 20 says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother... He is a liar, for he who does not love his brother, whom he cannot see, cannot, I did it again, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. This is, this is a test of salvation. Without this mark, where people look at you, where wise Christians, mature Christians are able to spend time with you and tell that you're a loving, sacrificing, serving person, you give them no reason to be sure of your salvation. You give yourself no reason to be confident in your salvation, where you affirm right truth, but live in extended periods without an increase, an overflow, a manifestation of your love to the brothers and sisters. It's as if someone would say that, my faith is so strong, I don't even need to see God to believe in him and love him. It's so strong, I can love and believe and affirm the doctrine of an invisible God. And then John says, you're proving yourself wrong because you can't even love the person beside you in your fellowship group, in your marriage, in your family, the person at church. You can't even love them and you can see them. Your faith is not powerful enough to make you love them. It is not true faith born from heaven that makes you love God. Therefore, love proves the invisible God and love proves your invisible salvation. Number seven, it brings great confidence. Look at verse 17 and 18. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also we are in this world, right? We're like him. Therefore, we're confident for the day of judgment. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. 
if we know God and we know God's love, then loving like God happens more and more in our life, okay? If we know God's love, see how it's defined, know it in the gospel, if we know God's love, then love in us will be pouring forth. And John says one of the effects of that is that as you see God's love and you see your love, you are able to be confident that as God is, so also I am in this world. That he is love and that I am loving. Therefore, the day of judgment is not something I fear with lack of assurance. I see God's work in my heart. I see God's work in my life through me. And therefore, I am confident for the day is drawing near, not where I am umming and ahhing about being a true child of God. And some of us spend a lot of time there. It is an extended period of lack of assurance because God, God has not, and more importantly, we have not applied ourselves to the means of grace to be sure of our salvation, to manifest love, to know the doctrines of Christ. Yet, when God's love is known, it is manifested in us, and that brings about great confidence of the day of judgment. We, of course, know that the Proverbs tell us, the New Testament no way peels it back, that fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Fear of God, knowing who he is, knowing that his word ought to be obeyed, is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. And yet, John is saying, not that that fear is now gone, if you love God, but that that fear brings us to believe his word, believe the gospel, which says over us that you have no punishment now to fear. The fear that John is talking about is not reverent, fearful respect of an omnipotent God who must be obeyed, but, but he's talking of, of the fear that fails to see that God as our father. The kind of fear that, that fears of punishment yet to come. You know this in your human relationships, and I hope this starts to manifest in your human relationship in the, in, in the positive sense. You know that in your relationships, if it's gone bad, if, if you have something to fear from that person, either because you've got unconfessed sin or because you know you owe them something or because you know that they're just angry, right? A family member or a friend who just gets into moods, it doesn't make you desire to cuddle up and, and talk to them one-on-one, -on -one, right? You, you pass each other in the hallway. You time it just right so that they're walking away from the water tap as you're walking up or you, you avoid one another. You uh, 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 conveniently miss their texts. It must have gone to junk. I don't even know. We avoid those that we fear. Your relationships are like this. Maybe, maybe this needs to just be said over your family, your spouse, your kids, whatever. Maybe your employers. If people fear you, they do not draw near. If they think that you're holding over them some punishment to bring down on them, not that that is always inappropriate in every relationship, but if you carry about yourself a sense of human sinful wrath, you will not be drawn near to. And in the same sense, we see this with our relationship with God. If we think, if we, if we fail to believe the gospel to our gut, then we'll be afraid of God because we assume that he's got some anger left over for us. And we need to go back to verse 10 and remember that Jesus is the propitiation who absorbed all of the wrath of God. There is no punishment left. I can go confident to God. I can await the judgment day with joy because I'm not afraid of it. And lastly, we can see in verse 21, if, if everything else here, if the gospel, if the, the outpouring love of God, if the Father's heart, if all of that fails to motivate us, verse 21 just takes it all away and says, well, it's a command. So obey the command. Verse 21, and this commandment we have from him, 
Whoever loves God must also love his brother. There you go. It's a rule. Every now and then, I just have to tell one of my sons, be nice. I, I know you hate him. I know the, the anger in your eyes. He just smashed your toy or whatever. Just do it. I don't care about the motivation right now. I don't care about your heart. I'm not perfect. I know. I'll admit that. And God is by no means doing the same thing. He's not saying, well, neglect the real thing, but, but let's, keep a, let's keep a front up here. Let's keep the, the unity of the church all, all sticky taped together with fake niceties. He's not saying that. He's saying, you have been commanded to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You've been commanded to find refuge from God's wrath in Jesus Christ, for God is more satisfied in his justice in Jesus than sending you to hell. He doesn't want to do that. God has demanded that you come to Jesus and be saved, for he loves to save sinners. And he does not twiddle his thumbs waiting until he can pour out his wrath on humans. God is love. God has demanded that you come to Jesus and, being found in Jesus, love every other person. Overlook their sins. Talk to them about their weaknesses. Help them sacrifice, serve in times of need. This is a command from God, for God is the perfect father who loves us in his son, Jesus Christ, and commands that we love one another also. If you have not yet placed your faith in Jesus for salvation, maybe you thought you have before, maybe you realize as you hear the love of God from Scripture explained that you don't know this God, you don't know that gospel, come and welcome to the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in him, rest in him. You'll be forgiven in the moment. You'll be saved, brought into God's family, filled with his spirit, and made to be somebody who loves other Christians. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. God, if we all come before you right now and we are able to believe what you've just said, that, that perfect love from you, understood by us, will not bring about fear, then we can come to you and in this moment just confess that we are not great at loving. We find excuses we find reasons to, to be angry. We don't confess sin to others. We hold grudges against other people. We, we despise when we should forgive. We are self-centered when we should be other-centered. We forget the love of God that has been poured out and think of it as what we deserve. Of course, God, that, that, that mindset shows in all of our actions. We are not infinitely loving. We are not those who can initiate love in an eternal sense. Lord, we're not you. We're not good. But God, by your Holy Spirit, I pray that we would be genuine in seeking love, genuine in putting to death those things in us that, 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 are, that are covetous or that are jealous of others or that are angry at others, that are proudful about ourselves and get easily offended. Lord, I pray that you would make us Christ-like, not just in a personal, individualistic, pietistic sense of holiness, but Lord, in a sense that is loving, that is missional, that is evangelistic, that is open-hearted, that is, that is warm-hearted towards each other. May we be each other's best brother and sister, best friend, for we've been told this is what Jesus is to us. Father God, I pray that you would save souls that do not yet know you. You would forgive them of their sins. Give them the righteousness of Jesus. Give to them the Holy Spirit. Save them and forgive them, Lord. For the sake and the glory of Jesus Christ, who is dead but is now alive and is enthroned, and in his name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.